Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. I'm your host, James Somaru, and this is your weekly Sunday session. So Marla, welcome back to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm good, I'm good. Another cup of coffee, another lockdown. <laughs> how, is, how is the second lockdown treating you? It's okay. Um, it was like a really straight well, when we were recording this, but I had Diwali like over the weekend. Oh, of course. Such, such a strange experience doing Diwali in lockdown. Like, yeah, bizarre. But how's it going for you? Uh, it's going okay. Uh, like you, I've just moved house, so um, I'm enjoying I'm, in, I'm enjoying walking around actual rooms rather than being in a one bed flat. So I've, uh, I've escaped to London as well to head towards Surrey, which is nice. So I'm currently sat in Weybridge. So yeah, I, I actually, you know, it's fine. It's one of those things. Fortunate to be in the position that we're in, I suppose. But um, yeah. and your step count's now gone up, I suppose. My what? Sorry. Your step count. My step count. It's funny. It actually has. Yeah. It actually, <laughs> it actually, it actually has. Um, oh yeah, funny. Yeah, we're on the list for a dog as well, so that will oh put it up God. even further. I'm proper adulting now, mate. Um, yeah, this is this is a much more adult chat than we had. <laughs> I know, right? Well, at least we can pretend. At when we, we were pretend. reminiscing of med school days. <laughs> yeah, tell you about it. I actually gave a talk to uh, Nottingham Medical School, or at least the Med uh, Med Tech Society at Nottingham, which is where I went to uni, and. Uh, it's so far, I didn't intend to do this, but when I started the talk, I ended up <laughs> going to do it again now, reminiscing. But I ended up just saying like, oh yeah, I was in Ancaster Hall and like, yeah, that was the furthest one from the med school, wasn't it? Like, it was so annoying having to get the bus there every morning when like people in Crips or Hugh Stu could roll out of bed. But all of a sudden, I just start, got all these like university affinities back. Just like, oh God, like, I can't believe I had to get the bus. Like, oh, Tuesday mornings after going to Oceana. Like, but yeah. Oh thoroughly God. enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed like, reminiscing about med school with the people that understood, which was nice. <laughs> but anyway, like with all of our chats, that talk was recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think someone did record it that I'm going to get it sent to me. I'll, uh, I'll let you have a copy. I might even put it on this podcast, to be honest. But anyway, as I say, we digress already. Um, the reason that you're back is obviously uh, you guys are, at Selen are starting a new pain clinic. And um, just as you were chatting about off air, I think you know, chronic pain is one of those that it's a really difficult one for a health system, I think, because people get chucked around to different clinicians. And I think probably like we talked about on the last time you were on, you know, the the, the problem that needs solving is so vast from, as I say, patients slipping through the cracks to being going up and up and up the pain ladder. And I suppose the system finding it a very difficult health economic model to to really solve the problem and I suppose the lack of incentives from outside. So there's so much going on. But I suppose first of all, why don't you tell us what you're up to? Well, I mean, there's just so much to talk about, as you say. I think that the the biggest thing is, as you say, it's unglamorous. This is like a really unsexy, unglamorous topic, and chronic pain has just been completely neglected, almost to the point now where uh, did you know, I didn't know this until I started working here, that we don't, you're not supposed to call it chronic pain anymore. And us as medical professionals, you know, well, ex-medical professionals, we still kind of say it, but we're supposed to be calling it persistent pain because the the analogy that, and you know, the, the feelings that it provokes when you say chronic pain makes patients feel like they can never get rid of that pain. 
it's chronic, it's lifelong, it's with them. Whereas like saying that they're living with pain, persistent pain, these are all things. So actually, where does it start from? It starts from the moment that that patient is described as being a patient with pain. Because suddenly, what do we do with them? As you say, you go to your GP, you say, I've got this pain. At this point, that is the best point to intervene, right? That is the point when you're first coming to your GP, even before you get to the GP, but it's that point that you should be intervening. But we don't. We send them around from tests to different clinicians, to different hospitals, six-month waiting lists. I think on average it takes two years, you know, for someone to get seen by the right specialist in chronic pain. And then you get to the end of it where at that point you're referred to a chronic pain service because it's got the word pain and they've got no other clue what to do with you. What if you could change that, right? And you could bring it much earlier instead of sending a patient on this ridiculous, you know, yellow brick road journey to some type of wizard of Oz that will maybe cure their pain, giving them more hope as they get further along. Why don't we just give them the interventions that we know are trusted, you know, that NICE recommend earlier and in a much more accessible way. And that's something that we've been working on for, you know, for the past year and a bit at Selim. We work really closely with the Care Quality Commission. And this is pre-COVID, right? So seeing before everything had gone virtual, what will it look like to take pain services online? And then with the learnings from COVID, we've been able to create a multidisciplinary team approach, which is a fully online model of clinical psychologists, physiotherapists, doctors, nurses, all online, creating a personalized plan for a patient will really hopefully help. I mean, how has that been so difficult to get to though? I, I, t- I totally agree. And, I, you know, I've, I've seen this up close because someone that I know suffers with uh, persistent pain or has had pain for a long time based on a previous fracture and i completely agree people people just slip through the cracks so often and get passed from pillar to post and i think what you're describing is obviously holistic it's as you mentioned clinical psychologists and i suppose pain physicians are anesthetic like there's there's going to be everything in there that treats it as a whole and I suppose with what, with what you're setting up, it's interesting to me, I suppose, when I think about that, you know, the health tech entrepreneurs listing that, that might want to improve a service or create a new service or things like that. It seems that in order to do so, in order to set up a clinic that actually does this, you've needed to have a really good understanding of the innards of how referrals even happen, of how a patient actually goes on that journey. And while and you quite rightly pointed it out, this has been a good idea for God knows how long, yeah. right? In the same way that having a cab that you could hail from your iPhone has been a good idea since the iPhone came out. It's always been an execution play. It's always been the ability to actually get this done. And so I imagine that members of your team that have worked within hospitals and done different things have been able to spot this and been able to innovate. So I'm interested then, and my question is, who in your team basically put this together or where did the hard yards happen when it, when it came to the innovation of this? And by that, I mean actually setting up a new system or indeed a pilot partner or being able to get patients referred, how did that actually happen from your side? 
Yeah, so super interesting, right? The pain community is actually a lot smaller than we would potentially think. You'd think that pain is such a big problem, 28 million UK patients, you know, like all of these big numbers, you know, but actually the community of, of practicing uh, healthcare professionals is very small, which means that once you're in, you're in kind of thing. And so we've really tried to um, foster good relationships in the community. Our chief medical officer at Selen, Dr. Benjamin Viaris de Lezenio, is phenomenal. Phenomenal. I can't say it. Our <laughs> chief medical officer at Selen is fantastic. I'll change the word. <laughs> essentially, he, he is great because what, what he's managed to do is work closely with the CQC, which is the regulatory body in the UK. And it sits there for, for the reason to protect patients. And the CQC have, have very rarely, we think we're one of, like, honestly, you could count on, on your hands, the number of secondary care clinics that are fully online. So we were really writing the rule book with them. And when I say we, it was Ben. He was writing the rule book with them, putting together the safeguarding, putting together the documents. What happens when someone has an opioid overdose online? You know, like, what happens when you're suspecting opioid withdrawal? What happens when... The safeguarding things is, is incredibly complex. I mean, you think about the amount of temporary um, consultations that went online without the safeguarding, but us as a clinic that was set up fully digital, we had to put in 200, 300 pages of safeguarding documentations, which isn't you know stretched out here because Ben sat and wrote things like, what happens to children during the consultation when it's online? So you're, you're sitting talking to the mother, but the child is over there playing. How are you thinking about what's happening to the child? The amount of legwork that needs to go in honestly took over a year with the CQC back and forth, many meetings, many appointments to try and get just the, just the clinic uh, CQC license through. And then from then it was, how does the model work for the patient journey? Which was not just Ben, but a white, uh, the whole MDT team of chronic pain specialists, which was who I mentioned before, the physiotherapist, the clinical psychologist and the nurses. Um, which is fantastic and they're fantastic. And you're obviously a team of clinicians, ex-clinicians that are able to, I suppose, understand this almost straight away, or at least you've got a significant leg up in understanding those processes. I think for people listening that are looking to innovate in healthcare through technology or otherwise, I think it is really important at this point to understand, I suppose, the ease at which you have, I suppose, defined what the CQC does, where it fits in. You've mentioned the importance of the patient journey, even real minutiae, like as you say, when a mother or a father is on a call, what is the child doing? These are relatively easy concepts for, for, for us to understand in terms of where it fits in and why it fits in with regard to a healthcare journey of a patient, of a clinician, of a system, of an improvement. We get it. And I think that is the value of having somebody with that experience in. Uh, and I, and I, really, I really believe strongly that you don't have to have a chief medical officer or somebody that necessarily was medical. But I think if you're looking to innovate within healthcare, you can see how just an easy idea, like a clinic, like why don't we have a clinic that just takes care of pain patients is actually so complex behind the scenes. And I think it is just so important to emphasize that for me anyway. And where I want to take this now, I guess then is the, 
is the the solution to the problem in, in a bit more detail and so you talk about the clinic and you talk about that you'll be taking these patients my my questions are where are you going to be taking them from what benefits is that actually going to have to the system is there a health economic model behind this that means that it works is that what you're trying to prove and i suppose what are you actually doing for them in that clinic you mentioned the different disciplines involved big question i will i will will try okay so what i what i'll explain first is kind of the patient journey and then i'll explain a bit more about the health economics and how it's going to be phased out right so what actually happens if you're a patient coming to leave the clinic and that's what it's called to leave the clinic you essentially you come on you book an appointment onto the website and you get a 15 minute onboarding call with the nurse who is my, the nurses in our clinic they're just so brilliant I love them to pieces but they they'll call you and they will just check you're basically eligible then book you in for a one hour appointment where you will talk to them about what is the background of your pain how have you long have you had it for what is your understanding of pain and um, what are your personal goals that you want to achieve through a, through a pain clinic, you know, you need to check the patient's motivation. What are they actually there for? Whether it's be walking the dog or whatever that may be, right? Then it's taken to an MDT meeting, which is is easy for us to understand. Um, but for for other listeners that maybe not in the heart of the medical world, it's honestly just a meeting which is held every weekly with different healthcare professionals that can bring different viewpoints to a patient's case. And so the whole team will be there of the clinical leads and that will be the the nurse, the clinical psychologist, the doctor and the physiotherapist. And what they will do is they will sit and review the patient's case and see who wants to have input and how they can have input and take it back to the patient and say, this is the proposed care plan we have for you. Um, we think that you would benefit from CBT. We think you would benefit from this. What do you think? Does this suit you? And then start booking in the appointments. And the nurse will be the person that coordinates the patient's journey and keep that contact. And the doctor only comes in when and if they're needed because the nurse can prescribe. They're 30 years experience. They're fantastic. They can lead the whole journey. We don't want to over-medicalize it, but we have the, you know, the consultants there should and if they need it. And they're always supporting and being the main person. So the clinic itself is augmented by having different types of um, like apps and different types of um supportive digital tools that can help the patient so we know that you know mindfulness can help we know that exercises online can help but what if the clinic can give you all of that as a package the one-stop shop to help you on your journey to improve your pain so just to jump in on that i think first of all that's where the tech comes in um which is great for this podcast but also i think there is a myriad of things that people can get and, and look for when they're in this odyssey on their own yeah. And it's often very difficult for people, I suppose, to find the right one or indeed the right combination. And it seems that, you know, by, by just telling patients to go away and find that stuff and, oh, yeah, do some meditation, there's this app or, or you know, clean up your eating, there's this app or do a bit of exercise, there's this app. It's, it's so hard to find what actually are the right ones. And when you're not having that guidance, it's really tough. It seems to me that perhaps the older I get or the more more health tech that I end up seeing, the, the best solutions for me are the ones that do blend the model mm. often. 
when they're patient facing, I think a good model, I'm going to backtrack slightly. When, when things are patient facing, I think a really good model is this blended model. And a couple of people have been on this podcast talking about that, which is that we use digital, but then we also do have a layer of human. And I think where, yeah. you, you said the word augment, you know, when you talked about the tools augmenting your clinic, I do think the digital augments the human and the human augments the digital. And I think there is that real, like greater than the sum of its parts when you can set up a system. So yeah, using the tools that the humans themselves know. So for tools that they themselves have used, they understand it, they get it. They are themselves kind of experts in it, that they can understand the patient then as a human being, they can understand what those patients needs are, what they are, what their personality is like, whether they pray five times a day and therefore something five times a day is better for them. They, they can have that human element, you know, and, and blend those two things together to come up with this digitally enabled care plan, which I think, and as I, what, what I was trying to get to before is like, also, the, I suppose the older I get is that healthcare is care or should be care. Healthcare should be people feeling cared for. And I'm not convinced that digital tools can go all the way on that or robots or humanoid robots. Like, I'm certainly not convinced of that. And I think, as I say, I, I, I have an inkling that people just want to be cared for when they're unwell and they want to trust the, the, the thing giving them advice, which I think is far better and greater with a human being involved. And it does seem to me that, you know, however much money we save in the system, you know, with digital, however much time we save, in the system for, for clinicians and individuals in the system it seems to me that that's better off redeployed as care by humans rather than great let's sack all the clinicians and just replace them with robots and, and 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 digital stuff right that doesn't make sense to me it seems that the more that we say we can keep budgets the same i'm going to throw put my neck on the line here keep budgets the same and redeploy it for care and i think we get a better health system that way don't know just my thoughts and, and what do you remember right like when you're unwell what do you remember when you're in hospital you remember that nurse that went the extra 100%. mile right remember the person that went and got you paracetamol when 100%. you were in a lot of pain like you're not going to remember i don't know like just like the the great you know policy document that you saw on the wall like it's it's always going to be that human touch that well, human you, frankly you, you don't know the efficacy of the drugs or the combination or how good any of that was versus something else you just remember how it made you feel i took yeah. this pill and it made me feel better I mean, yes, we can play about with the, you know, the, the 1% difference of this and the 5% difference of that. But at the end of the day, it's like they say, isn't it, that good doctors can get away with murder quite literally if they're nice to their patients. And I think because that's what people remember, how they made them feel. It comes down to communication. It comes down to a human to human interaction. But I do think that the more that we can do with technology to enable that time, to enable, to emancipate clinicians from the administrative burden, to give them the time to care so that they're not spread so thinly. So, you know, I can I say this quite a lot, but like when I was a clinician, I can remember, and perhaps it was because I was a junior doctor, but I was spread too thinly to deliver the standard of care that I wanted to. And I wished there was more technology helping me. And that's yeah. kind of where it all started for me, you know? And I think if we can get to that, that's, that for me is where health tech starts to get somewhere really interesting is that I suppose as you guys are doing with the clinic, right? Blending the two. Exactly. And, and 
and not just plugging in things because it's pre-existing. What we've tried to do is take out the Jurassic elements of secondary care, which I think primary care has already had that kind of deep dig and, you know, plowing through and they've got rid of all the clunky stuff with a lot of the innovation in the space. But in secondary care, there's still so much clunkiness. So we've really tried to take that out and not put it into the clinic of the future, right? Um, but redesign it with digital tools in mind that like, right, if if like a banker saw this service, would they think that this was agile? If someone else that's not a healthcare professional saw it, because healthcare professionals are pretty wowed by anything that's IT because they are, you know, they just don't get IT in their normal day-to-day life, but we sure. need to make sure it's at a standard of society. Mm. No, I totally agree. You mentioned clinic of the future as well. So the clinic now we're rolling out in the phase one, which is approximately 30 patients taken from an NHS trust. And we're going to put them in to leave the clinic, these patients, as long as they want to. And we're going to track them over a three month period, just initially to do a clinical evaluation of it, see if they enjoy it, if they benefit from it, if the clinicians like it. Because what we do know is that a lot of services within pain have gone online. CBT can go online, physiotherapy can go online. But how does it work as a joined up service in one place? And that's the big thing, right? Does it work consistently being online in one place for the patient? I mean, we we hope for and we're pretty sure it will, but we need to have the data to back it up. And that is by tracking through about 10 different validative questionnaires. We've got um, and that and that stems from all the way from clinical to the health economic side of things. And then after that, the hope is in, uh, in early 2021, if, if all goes well, to then be able to scale that offering up and be able to offer it as a service, especially, and this is my, this is my hope in the hard to reach areas in the UK, where James, they don't even have chronic pain services, because they just don't have that service available. This postcode lottery and pain is just ridiculous. So what would that look like as it scales up? Well, you know, as a startup, we have to, we have to, you know, be cost effective in this. So at the start, it's, it's, it's a small focus clinic, but as it scales up, we have the ability to bring on more digital tools, bring in more partners that have different apps. And, you know, every patient, they might not suit every single type of, let's say, you know, physiotherapy app, but if they've got a range of them available to them, it gives the physiotherapist the choice to be able to to give, to give the patient a range of tools available to them and say, you know, which of these would be beneficial to do? Maybe you'd benefit from this one. What do you think? Do you want to trial that one? And, and it's kind of the same as prescribing a medicine, right? But we're prescribing apps now. To- yeah, I totally agree. And so that leads me nicely onto the fact that you guys are obviously then looking for, or you might have already looked for and decided who are your partner health tech companies, startups, et cetera, that have got these digital tools. If you have already picked those, how did you choose them? And uh, are you open, I suppose, to people getting in touch? Yes, please get in touch. I mean, like right now my head is fully focused on getting um, these 30 patients through the door and making sure that we can, we can just prove we can prove that an online clinic works, especially not just for us, but for the CQC have put a lot of trust into the type of model that we're going to be providing. We don't want to let them down on this. 
But then as we scale, I mean, like, I'm so excited. I mean, I'm like you, James. I love it. It's like a day out every time someone shows me, you know, their new app that could help someone yeah. or that could do yeah. something and you get a demo. I like demos in the calendar are my favorites. So anything that we could we could look to help with. And, and the most exciting thing for me is anything that can help in opioid reduction as well. So we're, yeah. our team are very passionate about um you shouldn't be on medications just because it's on the pain ladder, as we were discussing before. It, you should be on medication because it's doing benefits for you when it's actually helping you. What happens when we get patients addicted to it and they feel like they can't live without it? Well, we need to be able to give them an out from that. So anything that can help with opioid reduction is something that we're really interested in. So one thing that sprung into my mind here, which I think is quite interesting, is that I was going to ask you what evidence is required or what kind of baseline do you need for those potential partners that are coming in to be used by the clinician? So I suppose instead of having to conform to a kind of evidence standard set by any regulatory body about the use of an app on chronic pain patients, really, I suppose you just have to meet the, the level that the prescribing clinician wants which to be fair might actually just be common sense quite frankly which is interesting right especially when you look to like let's take the future of like pharma or the future of um of of therapeutics in general right what you need is real world evidence and so you're able to get real world evidence that is one of the biggest struggles for, for companies that are trying to scale up, right? It is, is attracting that. But if a clinic of the future, in inverted commas here, is, is enabling the partnerships with these companies to tackle big problems together, providing them with access to patients that can, that can have the real world evidence as well, as long as the patients give consent, right? Then why not? Because actually, if, you, if, if you're a patient and you know, there is this potential solution, this potential technology that maybe doesn't have the same stamps of approval yet, but might be beneficial for you and you're up for test bedding it. Why should you be denied that? And who's, whose right is it to deny you? But I think as long as the right checks are in place, and as you say, that they're prescribing clinicians, I don't know yet, right? Because this is still early days, but it's something that I'm trying to work out in my head. And it's, I really like your points because it's super interesting to think, who needs to be comfortable with the solution in order for the solution to, to be rolled out? Mm. Yeah. And, and I think when it comes to things like essentially the, the apps that, or the, you know, the solutions that are trying to help people with behavior change, mm. actually it's, it, it's relatively easy compared to other things, particularly medical devices or software as medical devices, it's relatively easy to get past the first do no harm barrier, which clinicians will have in their head. You know, how much damage can I really do with something that's just reminding you to meditate or talking you through it guided or all the rest of it. And so actually I think clinicians can be a lot more comfortable with that sort of stuff which again is interesting to me because I actually think the complexity of dealing with chronic pain and bearing in mind, I was an anesthetist and did pain clinics and all the rest of it. I think a lot of the complexity behind solving the problem of chronic pain is actually the combination of these things that are right for the patient and personalizing it. So there is no silver bullet, I suppose, when it comes to a digital solution that's going to solve chronic pain in a kind of, well, I want to use the word meaningful, but not, not meaningful in a way, but I mean yeah. like in a way that is like, this is the thing. It's software as a medical device. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. It's going to do the other. I don't 
it's unlikely that that is going to be happening, especially not at the volume at which we can make a really good change through this combination of the things that are out there that enable good behavior change personalized for each patient. I think there's a lot of hard yards to get there. And probably that's why the, the problem has been avoided for so long in the system that it does, re- it does require, I suppose, <laughs> more effort to be put into building the relationship with the patient and yeah. understanding them. And it's a bit more in inverted commas fluffy. If you're from a clinical world where you're used to just giving a pill and someone's heart rate comes down and then it's done. And the safeguarding is so difficult. The safeguarding is so difficult with these patients because there are so many things that claim to work for them. So how, as you say, how can you make sure that, like the mindfulness might not do any harm, but how do you make sure that like, let's say a patient is on a, is on an app reports that they're feeling suicidal. How does that integrate into the clinic and flags up to a clinician to let them know that they need to contact the patient? How do you integrate the two to make sure that that nothing gets missed because there's no point tracking the data if it's not going to be actioned at the end of the day as well. So they're like the biggest problems that we have is like, there are some really exciting apps out there, but they might not actually be able to integrate into our clinic well. And that brings up a lot of safeguarding problems as well. And, and I suppose that one of the biggest things that we're trying to do with Lever Clinic is get people back to work. I think that, that if you look at the direct costs and indirect costs of healthcare, um to do with persistent pain you've got the direct costs which you can imagine is that coming back into a e back into many appointments seeing lots of different physicians back to the gp lots of costs there the indirect costs are are actually quite overwhelming when you start thinking about it though because the effects that it has on someone's life is is can be quite detrimental a lot of the time and and often gets overlooked by society but the point is, right, that if someone is waiting in the system for two years to see a, to see a pain specialist and, and get the treatment that's personalized to them, as we're saying, that is safe for them, that is exactly what they need, and there's no silver bullet here, then they won't, might not be able to be working during that time. How do we support them to get back into feeling motivated, feeling like they have the tools, feeling confident enough to start doing physiotherapy, because a lot of the time patients feel scared to resume day to day life. Once they've been in that much pain, I think, I I mean, I don't want to start rambling here, but I feel so passionate that, you know, (laughs) we have, we have to be seeing each patient with chronic pain as a person, because their lives are just flipped upside down because the system just can't support them right now. And back to what you were saying before about the word care, we have to be caring for them at every point along that journey until there is a silver bullet, if there ever is one, right? Mm. No, I agree. And with the move to personalized healthcare, with the move to, uh, as we talked about before, you know, like making sure that these complexities are understood and actually action for people. I, I think it seems to me that so much thought has gone behind this clinic that you guys are doing. It, it seems that it's, it's a difficult model to get right. It's a difficult model to put together in a way that actually solves problems for people. But it seems that you're giving yourselves, I mean, the best chance by an absolute mile compared to, I suppose, other people that have tried to solve the problem with, with a device or, you know, something along those lines. It's, it's more of a collection of things. And you guys are the layer that is triaging those as well as triaging the patients, but actually just matching the two together and coming up with a personalized plan. And I think that is, uh, it's, it's a very 
different approach as you as you've said you know it's something that's a first for even the cqc our regulatory body to actually say is it fine from a regulatory perspective and it'll be super interesting to see what happens to these 30 patients that go through um because if it works and you end up solving problems for patients people come off opioids people end up as you say back to work all of a sudden the economics of it seems extremely favorable and then it's about i suppose how do you actually refine this to be even better mm-hmm. that's i suppose when you get into the the uh, clinic of the future stuff that you were talking about so for people listening Marla, that want to get in touch with you i suppose you, you, as you say you're looking for startups and other health tech companies that can have a say in chronic pain Mm -hmm. to get in touch with you to possibly be part of the clinic that's that's arguably the first thing but then are there any other uh, people in the system that you'd like to get in touch with or anything like that I suppose asks of our of our audience at this point oh thank you for this I mean I suppose the biggest thing is if if anyone is interested in learning more whatever you're I mean like everyone it's it's sad everyone is everyone has seen the effects of chronic pain in their lives. I can't think of one person and maybe there'll be like one listener here, but I honestly don't know one person that hasn't seen someone in their life close to them live with pain. And so if anyone has any thoughts or input or feedback or want to learn more about the service or, you know, anything whatsoever, just, I would love to get in touch with you because the, the most important people as part of the project, and we haven't talked to the, about it enough um, in this, but the most important people have been the patients that have shared their stories and have given, given us guidance as to how to make this clinic something that they will find useful. And so the more that we can hear feedback and the more that we can talk to people, the better. Awesome. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Mona? Um, you can just go on to leaveaclinic.com and you can send a, um, a request form or you can find me on LinkedIn as well it's Marla Morgan and um, just reach out on there. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming back on. No, thank you for having me. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media. So you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.